If you open your Bible to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and John 7, 53 through 8, 11. If you're just joining us this week, we're in a series through the Gospel of John, and there's a reason why I'm attaching Mark to that. I'll maybe uh, try to speak to that in just a minute, but I've titled this message, Show Mercy, Not Outrage. From Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, listen to the word of the Lord. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? Or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And then from John 7, beginning of verse 53, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. At, at one, uh, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, you are God in heaven, and we are here on earth, and so let our words be few as we open our ears and our hearts to hear your word, you know how desperate we are for a word of truth and life from you. You know all of the individual ways in which we need to hear your voice. And so we ask as we open our ears and hearts to you, speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant, to your people, for your glory, knowing it's for our good always. So, Lord, move me out of the way, as always, and use my voice as your instrument to communicate to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in a couple of recent sermons, I, uh, I made some universal statements about everyone in the room. You may remember I said... Everybody, I know this without having to take a poll, everybody wants to be happy, for example. And I said, everybody 
uh, knows that the world is not how it ought to be. Things in the world just aren't how they ought to be altogether. Some, some universal statements, you can make them and be confident they're true. Well, here, there's another one here this morning, and it's this. Everyone in the room has an anger problem. Uh, including those who think that an anger problem is the farthest thing from you. Everybody has an anger problem, you and me. And I want to talk this morning about your anger problem. And mine, but mostly yours. <laughs> I, I, I want to I speak to that subject this morning. I'm going to take a little different route getting there, though, because this passage, John uh, 7, 53 through 8, 11, is different from almost every other passage in the New Testament. Um, and I want to spend a few minutes talking about that uh, in light of a footnote that you'll see if you are reading along in a modern translation, you will see some kind of footnote or you'll see this passage bracketed or something uh, that identifies kind of the unique, almost unique nature uh, to this passage. In fact, the only other one like it would be the end of uh, Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20. You, if, you, uh, were, if you had the ESV, you would see the footnote. Um, it's, it's got double brackets around it, and then it's got a footnote that says this. Some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Um, others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. I, I spoke very briefly to this kind of phenomenon that we run across from time to time in the New Testament. I, I, uh, there was a sermon back when we were um, in the passage about the man at the pool of Bethesda. I, I mentioned this just briefly. But the risk of ignoring a little footnote like that um, is the same as the risk of mentioning just, just briefly and, and moving on. And that is that uh, some people would see that and it would just unsettle them and erode their confidence in the scriptures when they see that sort of thing. That either by ignoring it and, and acting as if it's not even there or just saying something briefly and passing on and people have questions in their heads, oh my word, what do I make of that? So I, I, I do not want to risk a single person having their confidence in the Bible diminished by such a thing. In fact, we actually end up with reason to have higher confidence, not lower confidence in the Bible. So if you'll humor me for a few minutes, I'm going to um, address this kind of phenomenon in the scriptures um, at, at a little bit more length than I ordinarily would. This would, again, there's really only two passages like this in the whole New Testament. And so in, in probably 15 or 20 years of preaching, you might only come across this thing uh, this sort of thing a couple of times. But as I said, um, uh, when we were back in John chapter 5, I, I mentioned this briefly that when we, we'll see occasionally verses that are in the King James Version, but that are footnoted or bracketed in modern translations. And uh, basically what I, what I shared there was basically when the, when, the, when the King James Version was translated back in 1611, there were very few Greek manuscripts available from which to translate the Bible. In fact, I think it was a half dozen. Six Greek manuscripts uh, were available when the, when the King James Version was translated. Um, 
in the centuries since then, there have been thousands of other manuscripts discovered. Uh, so that, and, and some of them are very, very ancient. Okay, so that we've gone from six Greek manuscripts to nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts that we have today. It's actually about 5,800. And those discoveries have allowed scholars um, to compile a, a more reliable Greek text, if you will, one that, that uh, there's even more confidence is um, the original text that the, uh, that the apostles actually wrote. And, and there's actually, far, that, that 5,800 manuscripts provides far more um, evidence of kind of the original writings than any other uh, ancient document you'll find. So for example, um, when you, th you think of things like Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, um, Livy's Roman history, uh, even Plato's dialogues and that kind of thing. You, you have dozens to maybe two or three hundred manuscripts. For the New Testament, there are thousands of manuscripts. It is by far the best attested ancient document um, in existence. And so again, what, what results from that is uh, scholars have the ability to have a whole lot more confidence to, to arrive at what was originally written. The, uh, the other edge of that sword is, with the discovery of all those ancient manuscripts, you have variations in some of the texts. And it's why when you are reading your Bible, if you pay attention to the footnotes, you'll see these kind of things highlighted from now again. Now and then, the, the uh, one, one manuscript says this word and the other uses a different word. Or this phrase is not in, uh, found in some of the oldest manuscripts and so on and so forth. Or in the case of this passage in John about the, the adulterous woman, you have the whole passage that isn't in the oldest manuscripts. But assuming we pay attention to the footnotes and brackets, we have every reason to have extremely high confidence that what we are reading when we open the Bible is what the apostles wrote. You tracking with me on that? Now, I could, I could say a whole lot more than that, but you're already about to go to sleep, and I know that. So, uh, but, but again, the, 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 the point is it, is, it is worth being aware of that so that, number one, as you're studying the Bible, you have some idea of, of what to do with those things when you run across them, but more than that, um, so that you have every reason to be confident um, in the scripture you're reading. But the conclusions from that process, the reason this is bracketed in the way that it is, most New Testament scholars, including the ones that have a high, high, high view of the authority, inerrancy, divine inspiration of scripture, most scholars believe this passage about the woman caught in adultery was almost certainly not in John's gospel originally. And it's uncertain if or where it belongs anywhere else in the New Testament. However, what we also know is this story has been treasured in the church from the very earliest years. You find reference to this story about the adulterous woman from very early days of the church. And maybe more importantly than all that, it is entirely consistent with what we know about the character of Jesus from elsewhere in the New Testament, right? The reason people can hear that story and never question 
never even think to question whether or not that was authentic was because it is, uh, it is so clearly consistent with it, what we know about Jesus and what we know about his conflict with the religious leaders. And it's, it's really for all of those reasons that I wanted to attach to it today, Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 5, in conjunction with this passage to say, well, here's a passage in Mark 3 that's not at all disputed, uh, and you find very, very similar parallels to the kind of story that unfolds there. And it's from both of those, this morning I want to focus our attention on just one principle of all the things uh, otherwise that you might be able to say from this passage. I want to focus our attention on one principle that Jesus models for us in, the, in both of these passages from Mark 3 and from uh, John 8. And that is that mercy is a Christ-like and constructive expression of anger. You have an anger problem, and so do I. And the constructive and Christ-like way for us to express that is by showing mercy. Now that's good news and bad news because um, you, what you really want is to be justified in your anger. <laughs> all the things that you rant about, all the things that you feel outraged about and all the ways that you express it. You want to feel justified in that. That's a whole lot easier than showing mercy. I happen to know from personal experience. You have a whole lot more practice showing outrage than you do showing mercy. Right? But, but the, the way to be angry like Jesus is to show mercy. And we see that really in both of these passages this morning. And there are similarities between these accounts uh, of the healing in Mark chapter 3 and this adulterous woman in John chapter 8. You may have noticed as we were going along, but you have, in both cases, the Pharisees looking for reasons to accuse Jesus of violating the Jewish law in some way, right? This is, this is common. It shows up in the Gospels all over the place. They're, they're looking for ways to trap him. Into, into something that reveals that he doesn't really honor the law of God. Both of these passages have that. The second thing is there's a relatively powerless person caught in the middle of that, in the middle of this plot of these religious people. And the man with the withered hand whom the Pharisees would rather have left crippled than to see him healed on the Sabbath. Absolutely despicable, isn't it? And the, the, the woman who appears to have been used in this plot to trap Jesus. Now, keep in mind this. She is guilty as charged. She has committed adultery. She is guilty as charged. And yet, it has every appearance of a plot because their, their goal is to trap Jesus. It says that. They're looking for a way to accuse him. And the other reason is because the man is not there. I mean, she's been caught in adultery. Presumably there was another person. And he's not there, which says they don't care about the law. 
That is not their concern in this moment that somebody has violated the law of God. Their concern is they want to trap Jesus and get rid of him. And they don't mind uh, treating this woman with utter indignity. She's just a necessary casualty of their cause. You see, caught in the middle of all that. So you've got Pharisees looking for reasons to accuse Jesus, a relatively powerless person caught in the middle. And then the third similarity is the way Jesus responds. In both cases, he responds by showing mercy instead of outrage. And in both cases, it is outrageous what they did, isn't it? It is outrageous. And see, some of you have the problem that I have uh, in finding some kind of this, this, this middle way of mercy like Jesus models so well. I can either say nothing or I can just go, you know, punch him in the mouth, right? But, but it's because, you, because it is outrageous. And that's exactly the kind of emotion that it stirs in you that you want to react with. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, look with me at those first few verses of Mark 3. If you had that passage um, opened as we were reading it. Because the Pharisees are watching to see what Jesus is going to do. And he asks them if it's lawful or good to do, uh, lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm. And they just remain silent. Look what it says in verse 5. He looked around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man... Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. He looked in anger at them, but said to the man. Now see, what you and I are inclined to do is look at the man, at, in, the, 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 the Pharisees rather, in anger. And then give him what for, huh? You flipping hypocrites. You ungodly people. Go on back to where you came from. You know, whatever. We, we want to we say something to them. We're outraged. Or want to say nothing at all, do nothing at all, because we don't know how to handle conflict in a healthy way. Jesus looked in anger at them, but said to the man, stretch out your hand. Mercy. His response to his anger at them was to show mercy on the one victimized by them. That is a paradigm buster right there. That is a paradigm buster in your life and mine. And that's essentially what Jesus does with the woman caught in adultery too. It doesn't say expressly that he was uh, angry, but from from all appearances, the, the scribes and Pharisees have set her up to serve their own agenda. As I said, no sight of the man uh, involved in this affair. It was a dishonest ploy, disingenuous charges they were bringing, and they treated her in just an undignified way. Jesus did not lash out at them. He had plenty of reason. He could have brought accusation against them for what they were doing. He just wrote on the ground. I wish somebody had a screenshot of what he wrote on the ground. Don't you? I mean, I just wish I knew what that said. You know, it was something good. 
and perhaps something that contributed to their conviction. He may have written some other part of the law they were overlooking at that moment. Who knows? But then he just said, it, it reads as if he just said very calmly, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. They dropped their stones and went away. And he told the woman, of course, he didn't condemn her. Go and sin no more. And that is important to underscore in the passage, right? That he, he does not overlook the fact that she sinned. He calls it out and says, go and sin no more, but I, but I don't condemn you. But in both cases, Jesus saw that something was wrong and that it mattered. And his response was to show mercy to one injured by that. That is the most Christ-like and constructive expression of anger that we could imitate in the life of Jesus. There's a book that I've cited before uh, called Good and Angry. It was written by a Christian counselor and author named David Paulison. Good and Angry. You probably need that book. <laughs> it's not a very long one. It's got a red cover, so you can't miss it when, it, when, you, when you put it on the shelf and tuck it away. You buy it, and then you don't read it. It's just right there in red. You'll see it all, see it all the time. It'll remind you you still haven't read that book. But I cited that before. In fact, if you, at the end of this, in all seriousness, because if you wanted to go back to some brief mention of that without the book, um, back in uh, July of last year, I preached a message called Getting Good and Angry. It was when we were in 2 Timothy, and I, I, I think there were eight, uh, eight ways to unpack your anger, essentially, to sort of evaluate what's going on inside of you when you're, when you're having some episode with anger. And so you could go back and uh, listen to that, really, if you don't have the book as well, if that um, is helpful to you at all. But anyway, David Pallison says... That anger is the way we react when, we re when something we regard as important is not the way it's supposed to be. Okay? Something we regard as important is not the way it's supposed to be. Anger is the way we react to that. And he says in, in a couple of other ways, it is active displeasure towards something important enough to care about. Or then again, he says, it's a moral response saying that's wrong and it matters, okay? Anger is a moral response saying that's wrong and it matters. Because we're image bearers of God and therefore moral creatures, everyone makes this moral assessment of things. Everybody, Christian or non-Christian, everybody makes a moral assessment of things that some things are wrong in the world. Now we have people very on, on, on absolutely opposite sides of issues all the time, making their evaluation about what's right and what's wrong in a variety of ways. But everyone makes that moral assessment because we're image bearers of God. But because we're fallen sinners, we make inaccurate moral assessments. And we react in sinful ways. So make note of this, okay, because this is part of our anger problem right here, is that 
We make inaccurate moral assessments of things. That is, we, th we think something is a moral offense when actually it's just an inconvenience to you. Right? Those aren't the same thing. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we react as if it's just wrong in the universe and it happens to just uh, disrupt my life in some way. But we make an inaccurate assessment of things. And then, that's part of the problem. The other problem is even when we make a right assessment, we react in sinful ways. We've got a two-pronged problem. It's there. Uh, it's just stalking us all the time in what stirs up anger within us and how we react to that. And we are all naturally inclined to do anger badly because we've learned to do it badly because we were taught by parents and aunts and uncles and friends and everybody else who does it badly, right? We learned to do it badly and we have had decades of practice deeply ingrained in us, doing anger badly. And so, for example, there are some people who just have a short fuse. Everybody has to be careful around you because it doesn't take much to set you off. Everybody, they feel like they're walking on eggshells. There are other people who are just habitual complainers, just negative people. You know, you're hoping you don't see them. or hear from them, or, or, or whatever. And, you know, so because they're angry about something so, like, all the time. It, 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 is, it is the thing that warms their blood, that pumps their heart. It's just something to gripe about. Angry all the time. That's how some people uh, have their anger problems. Some people hold grudges which means they're just angry for a long time, an extended period of time. Some people, of course, are downright violent. And others, others realize they don't know how to do anger constructively, so they're just passive or indifferent about it. And see, again, th th these are the people who need to um, also have their ears perked up here because, you know, when you, you say something about people have, everybody has an ang anger problem, and these people don't think they have an anger problem because they're never angry. They're passive or indifferent, but that's your problem. Uh, you're you're angry because you still make a moral assessment that there are things that are wrong that matter. You just don't know how to do anything constructive about it. And if it does matter... Like, if it's really important, if it is morally wrong, then to be indifferent about it is a sin. To all of us raised in the South who, who just were taught to be nice, that's part of our problem when it comes to dealing with anger. Because we haven't learned how to deal with the conflict constructively. So, th that's... that's uh, some of the kinds of ways that we have anger problems, but no matter which of those describes you or me and the way we process anger, all of us have the tendency to be self-righteous in our assessment of what's wrong. This is the other part of it. With the, the, I've just described ways in which we respond in sinful ways, but again, we, we, we make uh, inaccurate assessments because we're self-righteous. We get uh, angry about things that offend us. 
or just inconvenience us. Uh, rather than things that offend God. And, and what, what really makes it more complicated is that there are so many things in life that actually are, in some ways, moral offenses to God and, uh, and, and also personal offenses to us and inconveniences to us. And they get wrapped up together in this tangled knot so that we have a hard time distinguishing between the two. And so everything just gets us all equally stirred up and we feel justified in it. We have uh, righteous anger and self-righteous anger, sinful anger, so that they're, they're so intertwined we don't know how to unravel them. So all of us have an anger problem, but Jesus provides a model for us in how we can redeem it. And it's right here in this passage about the adulterous woman and then the passage about uh, the man with the withered hand. And David Pallison in this book, Good and Angry, he calls this good, Christ-like expression of anger. He, he says this is the constructive displeasure of mercy. What is anger? It is our response to seeing that, that, that says that's wrong and it matters. So how do, you, how do you respond in healthy, constructive, Christ-like ways? Because when, if it's wrong, it's wrong. And if it matters, something needs to be done in response. That's the constructive displeasure of mercy. Mercy is constructive displeasure. And there are four aspects to it. If you're taking notes, these are maybe uh, some of the things you want to write down and walk away with. Four aspects to the constructive displeasure of mercy. We see them actually modeled in these two passages. Patience, which Jesus showed toward almost everyone. Do you realize the offense that sin is to a holy God? I mean, do you, do you realize the reason why God has to be immediately uh, wrathful toward our sin? God is patient and slow to anger, right? Count the number of times it says that in the Bible. He is slow to anger and he tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, patient, patient. Jesus demonstrates that all the time and he is demonstrating that to everybody. I mean, he, he occupied the world and walked among people like us. Patience. Second is forgiveness. He forgave the adulterous woman here who's, who's plainly guilty of the sin she's been accused of. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Forgiveness is a willful decision not to get even. A willful decision not to pay, pay, make people pay what they owe. 
And that's painful sometimes. To forgive. Because so often we think people don't deserve it. They haven't even sought it. Those aren't, those aren't conditions of our forgiveness. The third, he says, the third aspect of a uh, constructive displeasure of mercy is charity. You could just call that love, that charity actually is, is helpful in drawing out something of that word that we might lose otherwise. But that is actively demonstrating, you know, love and kindness and forbearance towards somebody, um, act, uh, you know, actively giving of ourselves for their good. Uh, Jesus was charitable toward this man with the withered hand. Again, he's charitable toward the adulterous woman as well. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now see, again, here's the problem, folks. We have heard these Bible verses for so long that we, we lose our, our appreciation for how glorious and wonderful they are. Because if we're called to to imitate Jesus and the work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is working in us for our life is making us more like Jesus, then we ought to be becoming people who are more patient, more forgiving, more charitable. And then fourthly, people who can engage in constructive conflict. Many of us grew up not knowing there was such a thing as constructive conflict. It was just destructive. It might feel good for a moment. But see, Jesus didn't just avoid the conflict here. He didn't lash out and call them names. He didn't say sarcastic things. But he also didn't just avoid the conflict. He, he confronted the, the scribes and the Pharisees here with their own hypocrisy, basically. How exactly he pulled that off, I don't know. Again, what he wrote on the ground, who knows? But even when he said, you, you who are without sin, he's without sin, cast the first stone. He just convicted them. He didn't just avoid the conflict. And by the way, um, he dealt with the conflict, the issue of all human sin, not only of the scribes and the Pharisees, but, but ours as well. He dealt with it decisively on the cross, didn't he? See, that's patience. Uh, he, he deals slowly with the issue, but he dealt decisively with the issue but in a, constructive, in a constructive way. Again, this is the problem that people have, um, whether you are that short-fuse, irritable, uh, complainer, violent person, all of those ways in which people deal 
sinfully in their response to anger, that's not constructive conflict, but neither is the person who's indifferent and just passive aggressive about it. See, that disguises itself as, as peacemaking, but it, it really becomes sinful at the point where it just refuses to call wrong wrong. If it's wrong and it matters, it needs to be addressed in some way. Sometimes that means actually engaging in conflict in a constructive way. Other times it just means forgiving. <laughs> it just means forgiving and moving on. The guy who cut you off in traffic on the way here this morning, you don't need to go search him out. You might have written down his license plate number, right? Like, you don't need to post that online. Uh, you, you know, there's nothing else that needs to be done to bring justice to the universe because of that guy and his offense toward you. You just need to forgive and move on. There are some things like that. There's no more conflict necessary from that. You just need to move on from it. But other things need to be uh, engaged in a constructive way. And so here's, here are the takeaways, again, sort of... Um, application for us as we walk away from this. I would say just in general, start to pay attention to how often you get angry and about what. Because you'll probably be alarmed by how often there are things that make you angry. Even if you don't say anything, even if you're not outraged by it, even the things you're just a little bit perturbed by. There were some people here probably a little bit perturbed that the projection didn't work in the beginning of the service. Right? We had, a, we had an opportunity to practice before we even got to the sermon. I mean, just little things like that, that that stir us up all the time. But start to pay attention to how often and what it is that you get angry about and ask yourself a few questions. Am I angry about something that bothers God or just me? Like, does it, does it really matter to God? Or what in this really matters to God? Because again, one of, our, one of our biggest problems is that we justify our own assessment of things as if um, every, everything we're mad about in this world is the equivalent of the money changers in the temple. That Jesus goes and turns over the money changers. We're the, we, just see, we just see money changers and people selling livestock all over the place. We're going all over the world, turning over tables in the name of Jesus. We're just righteous. Is it something that really matters to God? And you know the whole list of things right now. I mean, it's just it, people, people are, are angry about you know, vaccine mandates and anti-vaxxers. People are angry about racism and critical race theory. People are angry about uh, black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter. Right on down the line, right? I mean, there's this never-ending list of things we're angry about. And see, you can see that there, there are real moral offenses wrapped up in that, Right? Hopefully, you can also see there are personal offenses wrapped up in that. Those are harder to see. 
Those are harder to untangle. And that's why we want to ask the question, is to what extent am I upset about something that really matters to God, or is it just something that matters to me? Uh, that's one question. In the vast majority of cases, you can just uh, be slow to respond and forgive. Like I said, you, don't, you, you, don't, you can just forgive the person who cut you off in traffic, the toaster that burned your toast this morning. I mean, there's nothing to say at all about that except you should have never uh, gotten upset and, and you know, kicked the toaster or whatever uh, you did. Um, many, many things we can just forgive and move on. Uh, but that's one question, just dealing with why am I angry. Next question, besides myself, who has been personally wronged? And how can I show mercy? Here's maybe the real takeaway. I, I said there was one point here uh, that I wanted to make in the sermon in case, I've, in, in case I've obscured that in all the rest of this time I've been talking, that mercy is a Christ-like and constructive expression of anger. Mercy is a constructive and, and, and Christ-like expression of anger. And so who can you identify who actually has been harmed by the wrong that you've identified? Who is the man with the withered hand in your world? Who is the woman caught in adultery and, and wrapped up in this evil plot by religious people? Who is it that's actually harmed and how can you show mercy to them? rather than just ranting about your outrage about what the offender has done. Are you getting this? You see, it's the same, it's the same assessment of what's wrong. It's an accurate assessment of what's wrong. It's an accurate assessment that it matters. The response is to show mercy to somebody harmed by that rather than just outrage toward the offender. So, I mean, for example, let's be real practical about that. Um, even, uh, you know, uh, the outrage about the debacle in Afghanistan. Okay, there's reason to be angry about that. What a mess. What a dishonoring of people's lives, right? What a, what a senseless loss of life. Who that you don't necessarily know personally, but who has been personally harmed by that decision? Is there somebody you could, you could look up and find out contact information of how to email somebody you've never met before, of just your condolences, your sorrow, the fact that you're praying for them? A spouse of somebody who, who died in those events, for example. Is there a GoFundMe that you could contribute to uh, that helps pay funeral expenses of somebody. I mean, I'm, I'm making that up. My point, though, is simply that the very things that, that usually uh, incite outrage from us, how can we then look elsewhere? We look at them in anger and then say to the man, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on you. Who is there who's actually been harmed, that we can, we can begin looking to identify victims of all the moral evil in this world and show mercy on them. 
So besides yourself, because I know you've been, I know you've been wronged by all of it, right? You've been harmed by all of it. So have I. Besides yourself, who's been harmed by that? And how can you show charity towards somebody? And then finally, how might I need to con- uh, confront the offender in a constructive way? This is one of the reasons patience is one of the aspects of constructive displeasure. Because many of us need a little bit of time before we're ready to deal with conflict in a constructive way. Right? Is there any, there's probably some amens, you just don't want to say it out loud. That's okay. Right? But if I, if I say what's on my mind right now, it's not going to be constructive. It might feel good to me. It's not going to help. And that's what we do a lot of times. That's why patience is in order. Be slow to anger. Perhaps there's some constructive conflict that needs to be engaged in. Perhaps it just needs to be forgiven and walked away from. And we need the Holy Spirit's help and even discerning that sometimes. But Jesus models that for us here um, in the way that he dealt with these two individuals. And if you begin now to read the Gospels, you'll see this all over the place. This is how God responded to sin in the world. A God whose wrath is stored up against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. You know, Romans 3 says that Christ uh, was the propitiation for our sins. That is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. What is it that we're being saved, what is it we were saved from? We're, sati- we're saved from the wrath of God. That's what the Bible says. But God's answer, God's answer to that was he was slow to anger. And in the fullness of time, he showed mercy in the most unimaginable way to the greatest degree by sending forth his son. Who, though he knew no sin, became sin for us. That's how God has dealt with his wrath justly due to you and me. And he's called us to deal with ours in the same way. There's a reason why we're told to put anger and wrath and malice away from ourselves. Put away the old man. Go back and read Colossians chapter 3. You'll see that among the list. Because if we're to be more like Jesus, we're to become people who are more patient, more forgiving, more charitable, more constructive in our conflict. And certainly there are many of us, many of us coming out of the last year and a half or the last few years of the hostile, emotionally charged, uh, irrational environment that we're living in. Many of us need to throw down our stones and walk away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you 
that though you were in the form of God and had all of the glories of heaven uh, rightly in your possession, that you did not cling to all of that, but made yourself nothing for our sake, came in the likeness of men, humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, because of the great love the Father has toward us. And we thank you, Lord, for illustrations of that in the lives of individual people so that we can make sense of it the way that you were kind and charitable toward that man with a withered hand, the way that you were unspeakably gentle and gracious toward that adulterous woman and even toward those accusing her. Would you teach us to be people who live more and more that way? People who learn how to rightly assess what's wrong, what matters, and then how to deal with that in a constructive, gracious, merciful, Christ-like way that you did. And Lord, we acknowledge we, no, we need not only to be taught that, but to be formed in that way. So would you work into us the good that you would call us to work out? That you might be glorified in your church and the way that we demonstrate patience and forgiveness and charity and constructive conflict in the world you've placed us in. And Lord, would you work even now by your spirit in each of our hearts to convict us of things that we need to confess, things that we need to open to you to be cleansed of. You work in what you want us to work out. For Christ's sake, amen.